The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. We uh, value the ministry of children and what, uh, what's going on there. Hey, turn to someone next to you right now and uh, say to them, please thank you or you're welcome. Okay, do that right now. Please thank you or you're welcome. <laughs> okay, good. We're off to a good start. Very polite group. I have a tough assignment this morning because I have been given the assignment of preaching on joy, the fruit of the Holy Spirit called joy. And and frankly, when I kind of did a a self-analysis of this morning and yesterday, I I haven't felt a lot of joy this week. And so I'm asking the Lord to just meet us here in this uh, time together. And I just want you to know, declaring up front, that uh, I'm, I'm on the journey just like you to figure this stuff out how to get the joy of Jesus uh, in my life, and so on. So I read this past week that the habit of saying, please, thank you, and you're welcome, arose in the, in the commercial revolution, in, in England particularly, of the 16th and 17th centuries, when the, particularly the middle class of people there were running and growing in markets and shops and offices, and it became a custom then to uh, expect politeness when doing transactions in the commercial world, just like we teach our children to say please and thank you and so on. And it's interesting because we don't even know sometimes where these words come from, but I just want to kind of give you a little bit of a a rundown on on what I've learned. Please, for example, is really short form for if you please. It's really actually saying if it pleases you to do this, could you do this? It's actually the same root as the word, if it gives you pleasure to do this, would you do this? And so we say that all the time. It's like the French, s'il vous plaît. You know, that's the same idea. If it pleases you, or the Spanish, por favor, you're under no obligation to do this. It's like saying, pass me the salt. Not that you have to pass me the salt, but if you, if, if you find pleasure in passing me the salt, please pass me the salt. That's what please means, you know. And we think to ourselves that when someone passes the salt, it's it's really an order, but it's it's not an order if we say please. But it really is because it's a very, it's hard to socially, you're obligated, it's hard to say no. No, I don't want to pass you the salt. I mean, how do you do that without looking like a jerk? So, that's that's please. And thank you is, is actually, it comes from the word think. And the idea originally with thank you was, it meant, I will remember you for what you did, which is not true. I mean, you're going to forget that someone passed you the salt. You know, it's not really true, it's, but, it, but that's where it originated from, Portuguese, obrigado, it's the idea of much obliged, I'm in your debt. Even the French is even more, merci. It means mercy. It means that you have been merciful to me, I am beholding to you. Symbolically, you are placing yourself under the benefactor's power. I am in your debt for passing me the salt. That's the idea. Please, thank you. And then there's your welcome. In the Spanish, de nada. It's it's nothing, is, is the idea. It's a way of reassuring the one to whom you've passed the salt that you are not actually holding this debt against them in your imaginary good deed account book. We sometimes say, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Or you're saying, no, actually, what you're saying is you actually did me a favor by asking me to pass you the salt because you gave me the opportunity to do something I found very rewarding in itself. (laughs) 
Please, thank you, you're welcome. Of course, being the good parents that we were many years ago, we taught our children at the dinner table that when they were being dismissed from the dinner table, it's good to say ten words, very important ten words. It's these words. Thank you for the delicious meal. May I please be excused? Within a few months, that degenerated into something that sounded like this. Thank you for the delicious meal. May I please be excused? <laughs> and it was right from the heart every time. I mean, it was right from the heart. I knew it every time. Look at how... Look at how grateful they are, yeah. So what am I saying? What does this have to do with the sermon this morning? Well, I draw your attention to these because, of course, we, we say, please, thank you, you're welcome, very much by rote, by expectation. We've been taught social niceties. This is the way the world goes around. Um, and yet we often don't really mean it, do we? And I say it because if we've learned anything from our study of the book of Galatians, we have learned, I hope, that God does not want some kind of mindless, duty-bound, heartless, religiously informed, outward conformity when the heart is really not engaged in what you're saying. He wants, in other words, grace to touch the deepest part of our being so that what results is a sincere response of gratitude and obedience to God. And in talking about the fruit of the Spirit, I think it is exactly the same. That in talking about the fruit of the Spirit, God is not interested in us faking the fruit. He's not interested in us faking the fruit of love or joy or kindness or gentleness. Just because we're expected to, because we should, because it's the religious thing to do, because we've been conditioned to do, He wants to see the real fruit of His presence. And so... As we dive into this fruit of the Spirit, joy, I, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and let's take a look at this scripture that we've read and will be reading more often even in the summer. But uh, I'd like to begin in verse 22 of Galatians 5. And if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as I read the word to you? Galatians 5, 22 to the end of the chapter. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The reason that uh, John Piper is one of my favorite authors is because you will hardly find a book or an article that he has written that doesn't talk a lot about joy. And the reason that he does that is because he's a self-identified, self-declared Christian hedonist, which means, in other words, that he has set his heart on being, on pursuing pleasure. He's set his heart on pursuing pleasure in God. He believes, and I believe, that the Scriptures teach that God created us for His pleasure. God, God created us to be seeking pleasure as, as, a, as, as um, a contrary to the way that so many of your friends that are unbelievers might think is 
God is not opposed to pleasure. In fact, He is the biggest pleasure seeker there is, and He calls His followers to be pleasure seekers. He's not just committed to His own pleasure. He is committed to your pleasure as well. When these two come together, His pleasure and our pleasure, then we find ourselves in the center of God's will. We were created, we were hardwired for pleasure, the kind of pleasure that most exalts God and most fulfills us if we understand why He created us. And so at the end of the day, the, the best way to end the day is to know that God gets all the glory and I get all the joy. That's the way Piper would explain it. He likes to shorten the, the or to uh, modify the shorter catechism, you know, the Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I love what Piper does to it. He says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. You see, we're Christian hedonists. We, we really do want to enjoy God. We don't want to respond to Him out of duty, out of have to, out of habit. We want to respond to Him out of joy. And if joy is anything, it is this incredible, overflowing, can't-contain-yourself eruption of gratitude to God. That's what joy is. Piper likes to quote C.S. Lewis in his book called The Weight of Glory. You would have heard this quote before probably. When C.S. Lewis wrote this, he said, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like a little ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, C.S. Lewis said. So on a daily basis, though, in spite of this, on a daily basis, we find ourselves all too often in pursuit of lesser joys, of lesser passions, right, of lesser desires than the highest pleasure which we would find in relationship with God. And even as I say this, I think, if you were honest with yourselves, there is something in you and I that is absolutely unbelieving about that statement, that we will find our greatest joy in God, that we will find our greatest fulfillment in God. Even as I say that, there's something unbelieving. We might agree with it as an ideal, but we doubt it really is attainable to find more joy in God than in pursuing our own self-fulfillment, our own concept of pleasure, whether that is found in work or play, or whether it is found in being a foodie, or a golfer, or a, a musician, or a traveler, or hanging out with your friends, or partying and finding pleasure in whatever you define that to be, we really don't believe that God is yet more to be desired than that. Most of us are reminded daily that we have partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We live on the, this side, the east side of Eden, and we are having a hard time finding our way back home to the Father, even though Jesus has made a way for us. If you are honest with yourself, you can say, that's me. And in the last four months in Galatians, we have been studying and learning that Christ has, in fact, opened up the way back to Eden for us with the Father, the way for us to be pleasing to God, 
the way for us to be actually the delight and the pleasure of God. It's a big hurdle for some of us to come to is that we understand that God takes pleasure in us. He delights in you. Both the words pleasing and pleasure come from the same root, and joy is generated when we go to God with a please, just like I started the service with, the sermon with. When we go to God with a please, we're saying, God, I am choosing to find my pleasure in you instead of the cheap alternatives that this world offers. And we understand down in our core that he finds pleasure in me, and so I'm going to go and find pleasure in him instead of the other places. And, and then when God responds and we receive from God, then, and then there comes a thank you in response to what he's given us. And the thank you is because he is the source, we understand, of all good and perfect things. They all come down from God. And then once we say thank you and gratitude and joy overflows, God responds by saying, you're welcome, child. You're welcome, child. I love, I love it when I can bless you. I love delighting in you. I love being able to give you what you've desired because you've desired me and my will. You see, when this kind of exchange takes place on a regular basis between the Lord and one of his children, not out of duty, right? Not out of habit or expectation. I mean mere habit or expectation or false motive. When this kind of exchange takes place because it's just a sincere response to God, then joy is the result. Joy. And so please receive and then thank you and you're welcome is really the shape of the Christian life. It's the shape of every day, should be. And if we're indifferent to whether we do something out of, of cheerfulness as opposed to duty, then we're indifferent to what pleases God. God loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? And if we're indifferent to the cheerfulness, the motive behind it, then we're indifferent to what God finds most pleasurable and important. It is, it is extremely important, not just that you do the right thing. It is extremely important to God that you do it because you love him and you take joy in him and you respond to him out of joy. Extremely. You cannot unpack the Bible and Christianity without that peace. And you will never understand the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit without understanding that. Just let me give to you a, a few scriptures that generate this idea of joy being a response to God. Deuteronomy 16, 15, the Lord your God will bless you in the work of your hands. Why? So that you will be joyful. Nehemiah 12, 43, they offered great sacrifices. They rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. They responded to God in joy. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you, O God, rejoice. Let them sing for Take refuge in God, respond with joy. Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 43, 4, send out your light and your truth. Then I will go to the altar of God, my exceeding joy. Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 67, 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity. Psalm 94, 19, when the cares of my heart are many, 
Your consolation, O God, brought joy to my soul. You see, joy is always responding. Luke 2.10, I bring you good, great news of, a good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today in the city of David is born to you a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. And it's always responding. John 15.11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. John 16.24, ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be full, Jesus said. Ask. Say, please, God. And you'll receive. And then you say thank you because your joy is full. It overflows. James 1, 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith is going to develop perseverance. And 3 John 4, one of my favorites, I have no greater joy, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see, we, jo- we see this joy response to what God has done. It, it, it's a please, receive, thank you, you're welcome kind of exchange. It's not flowing from duty. It's overflowing from joy. It's not flowing from tradition or good manners, rote experience. It's overflowing. That's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking about this offering that they've taken up. And the Macedonian churches were so, so good at responding to this offering. They, out of their poverty, they gave. And, and it says in, in, in chapter 8, verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealthy generosity. Chapter 9, verse 12, The ministry of service that they are supplying to the needs of the saints is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, joy is not flowing. Joy is overflowing. Joy is overflowing. It's the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.8, that's why he says this. He says that you're filled with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. You can't express. You can't do, The world knows nothing of this. It's responding to God. And that's because the fruit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, just because it's the fruit of the Spirit does not mean that it's disconnected from the realities that we face each day as the, the, the video showed, Josh and, and Gears's video and, and play showed, it doesn't bypass us. We're not robots that God the Spirit says, oh, good, I'm going to give you joy, boom. It's not a helmet you can put on. It doesn't bypass your mind, your heart, your will, and that's why in Galatians 5, right after it, in verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We have a responsibility. We can get out of step with God the Spirit and then march to a different beat and all of a sudden realize I'm not feeling joy. Well, we've stopped marching to His beat. On a few occasions during our study of Galatians, some of you have asked how over the last month they've asked, how is it that grace and freedom fit with our responsibility to obey Isn't it dangerous to preach grace because it could be abused? And by the same token, we could ask the question this summer, isn't it dangerous to to preach that love, joy, peace, patience, and all these things are the fruit of the Spirit as if to suggest that you can just be passive in this? You don't have a responsibility in this. Well, that's not true, is it? Because if we ask about the intent of faith, we understand that the intent of faith is to transform us, to restore this joy in God, this relationship. Remember back in the garden with Adam and Eve, they loved walking with God in the cool of the day. Soon as sin entered this world, 
soon as they picked of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, all of a sudden the one that they found delight in and pleasure in, God, now they're hiding from. And so the intent of faith is to get us back to that place of finding pleasure in God. It's not just a fire insurance for the end of the age. It's to live a transformed life, a corrected life in relationship with Father. A scripture passage that teaches this is the grace of God in, verse, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us. The grace of God is a teacher. Teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for that blessed hope. So the grace of God is a better teacher than the law of God. The grace of God, which we respond to in a joy eruption of gratitude, is a better teacher than the law of God, which points its finger at you and says, you better do this, and we respond in duty. The grace of God is a better teacher. One who knew this well and studied it well and wrote on it well was a man who lived during the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was arrested by the Gestapo in Nazi Germany in 1943 because he was linked to a group of conspirators who were trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and it failed. In April 45, he was hanged, but not before earlier he had written the book that later was translated into English and called The Cost of Discipleship. And it was Bonhoeffer that developed the two ideas of what he called cheap grace and costly grace. And uh, let me read to you what he said. He basically defines the fact that he points way back to Martin Luther, and he says, you know, in Martin Luther's time, yes, the doctrine of the justification by faith alone in Christ alone was needed to be regained but it did not need to degenerate as it did into this idea that it became, instead of the justification of the sinner, it became the justification of sin. Grace provides all. I can live however I want. There's no need for my activity in the Holy Spirit, which was foolishness, of course. And so Mark, or sorry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, as a principle, as a system, it means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toil of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It's the grace that comes without discipleship and without the cross. Costly grace, he says, is the treasure that's hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a person will joyfully, gladly sell all that he has. Costly grace is the kind of grace we follow because it cost the Son of God his life. It's costly for us to follow him, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer is arguing in this book that when we understand God's love and grace, that he takes pleasure in us, then we understand joy as a result. You know, I read several years ago, and this is an old, old uh, statistic, so I'm sure it's changed since then, but 
I read several years ago that the United States, the U.S. Secret Service, was established in 1865. 1865. At that time, a third to a half of all U.S. currency was counterfeit. Imagine living in a society where a third to a half of the dollars that come across your wallet are counterfeit. And so they created this group. Sorry. I, they created the, the Secret Service. They developed measures by which counterfeit money could be identified and true money could be created. Things like color-shifting ink, watermarks, security strips, microprinting, and of course, since they've been doing it better and better each time. Now, of course, and this is an old data, but now less than zero. 0.01, sorry, 0.01% of money that's in circulation in the United States is counterfeit, less than 0.01%. I'll never forget the day that I got my first counterfeit bill. I was in Bolivia, and it was February 2003, and a missionary that, that paid us in cash, uh, a senior missionary that paid us in U.S. dollars, and then we would go to the streets and exchange the money for Bolivianos, and I'll never forget, I got paid in cash, and it was in $100 bills. And I, I, um, I uh, went to the streets one day with one of these $100 bills, and I went to the street money changers, and right away they knew it was, it was counterfeit. And I said, no, it's not counterfeit. My senior missionary gave it to me. <clears throat> but they said, no, we're not taking that bill. I went to the bank, and sure enough, it was counterfeit. But the bank didn't stand behind it. They said... Actually, what they did was he took a, a punch, a hole punch out, put a whole bunch of holes in it. I got it right here. Whole bunch of holes in it. $100 bill, U.S. bill, gave it back to me. Have a nice day. <laughs> That's what they did. I decided from that moment on, I'm going to figure out what looks, what's counterfeit and what's true. I want to figure this out. I want to I know what identifies counterfeit money and, and, uh, and real money. Well, same thing we need to do with fruit, don't we? We need to understand. How, how do we learn? How do we, how do we sort of self-analyze to know if I'm really walking in the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Holy Spirit? God will help you in this. God will test you in this. If you set your sights on being a more humble person, if you set your sights on being more loving with the love of God, God will show you where your love comes to an end. It drops off. He'll bring things into your life that will cause your love to drop off, and then you'll go to God and you'll say, please, right, please. And he'll say, I love it that you came to me. And he'll, he'll give you that, that love for that unlovely, unlovable, unloving person, right? And then you'll get filled up with love, and you'll think, where did that come from? Well, it came from the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love. And the, and the same goes for joy, doesn't it? It's not just related to the happenings of your life, which is where happiness is dependent on. It's really something way deeper than you. I like what Steve Morris said last week when he said to us, that if we're going to love God, 
the way he deserves to be loved, we're going to need the fruit of the Holy Spirit to love God. And if we're going to love each other the way that we should love each other, we'll need God's love to do so. And we could say the same for joy. If we're going to experience real joy, the kind of joy that is like the underwater rivers that keep on moving regardless of what's happening on top, then, then it's only God that can give you that. And so I was doing some weeding in the backyard yesterday, and um, I was just thinking about how weeds, weeds don't need any help. It's kind of like, it's kinda like the, the, what Paul says in, in Galatians 5 about the works of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. They don't need any help. I mean, I can become irritated without any help at all from, from somebody else. Some of you help me, but... <laughs> and and, and you, know, you know, I can blame nobody but me because somehow in, in my backyard of my heart, there's fertile soil and conditions for bad stuff to grow, the weeds to grow, right? I like that Dustin just shared honestly. It's been a hard week. I've had some bitterness. You see, the point is, is that if you, if you liken your heart and your life to a garden, I've been thinking about this. In our back kind of little triangle of our property, we have this little section of land that we hardly go there. The dog goes there to do certain things, and we don't go there. But there's a really good rhubarb patch there. And every spring, maybe around June or so, you know, I'll go back there, and there's a whole bunch of rhubarb. I mean, there's dozens of plants. That's what I thought the first day I went back. I almost went running to Pat and say, Pat, rhubarb's multiplied. And then I realized it's just some weed. Do you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's probably a name for it. It looks a lot like rhubarb, though. But it's not. And I think that somehow in our hearts, they're like gardens, and these little beautiful flowers that the Holy Spirit has planted there are trying to get sunlight. They're trying to get fed. They're trying to, to grow. But sometimes we let other stuff, all those weeds just crowded out, and that's why Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk or live by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You've got to tend to your heart, don't you? You've got to tend to that garden. And so Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to me, my disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so daily, on a daily basis, we have to figure out what the fruit of God's Spirit looks like. And I believe, I like what John Stott says. He says, here in this scripture, we have a cluster of nine Christian graces which seem to portray a Christian's attitude to God, to other people, and to self. Love, joy, peace toward God. Patience, kindness, goodness toward others. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control towards myself. It's an interesting way of thinking of these things. But how is it that we respond to a message like this morning? I'd like to share with you three things that I read in the book called Desiring God by John Piper. And I think this is the best way to respond when we have a hard time finding joy. 
How do we respond to a message on joy, especially if we don't feel joy or gratitude to God? He says this. He says, I'm often asked what a Christian should do if cheerfulness or joy of obedience is not there. It is a good question, and my answer is not, is, is not to simply get on with your duty because feelings are irrelevant. Not so. My answer has three steps, and here's the three things I would commend to you. First, he says, confess the sin of joylessness. Acknowledge the coldness of your heart. Do not say it doesn't matter how you feel. That's a big error we make. doesn't matter how I feel. I'm just going to do it. It's not true. We want to bring our hearts and our pleasures in alignment with God's heart and God's pleasures so that our response to God is always a joyful delight, not a duty. And so he starts by saying, let's, let's start by just saying, God, I'm not, I'm not filled with joy in this. Secondly, he says, pray earnestly that God would restore the joy of obedience. There you go. Please, God. Please, I, I, I come to you, the joy giver. I don't want to do this just because I have to. And then thirdly, he says, go ahead and do the outward dimension of your duty. He says, go ahead and do the right thing. Go ahead and do the outward dimension of the duty in the hope that in the doing, it will actually rekindle the delight. I like that. In the doing, it will rekindle the delight. It made me think this morning of a, the, the Hiding Place, a book I read several years ago of Corrie Ten Boom, and how after the war, of course, she had lost her sister Betsy in the war in one of the concentration camps. She was out on the circuit visiting churches after the war. And she remembers after a wonderful service where she had preached and shared her testimony, going to the back, and she looked up and she saw a man that, had, that was a guard at one of the concentration camps that she was in that was responsible for her sister's death somehow. And immediately, he had held out his hand to her, and it, she says in The Hiding Place, I think it's the books that she says this, she said that her, her arms were locked to her side. She could not lift that hand to shake his hand. And, and he said, if my memory is right, it's, she's, he said to her, isn't it wonderful that God forgives? Something like that. And, and her hand was locked there. And in that brief second, she prayed, oh God, help me. Right? And she was able to reach out and shake his hand. And somehow, as soon as her hand touched his hand, the doing enabled her to feel the delight in obeying God. And she was instantly, instantly given the joy of God and the delight in God and was given grace to love even her enemy. Can I pray for you as the worship team comes and let us ask that God would meet us where all of the fruit of our lives runs out and where God can meet us to fulfill the things that we lack. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just am one person that is learning how to live this thing out. All the grace abundance that you have provided, sometimes it comes in the form of love, sometimes it comes in the form of joy or peace or patience. 
And Lord, so often I fall short. And then when the weeds get in my heart, God, and I start to feel anxious or perturbed or bitter or something, and Lord, all that fruit of the Spirit gets crowded out. Lord, I just, I know that the only thing that you call us to do is just come to you. And we come to you this morning and we just confess, Lord, please meet us in our poverty where our resources have run out. And as we receive from you what we need, we say, thank you, Lord, that, that you showed yourself strong in this weak vessel. And then let the joy overflow so that other people will see that you get the glory and we get the joy. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.